1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to this episode on the psychology channel of the New Books Network. My name is Jolie Ho, and I'm very pleased to be here today with Dr. Carly McKay, Senior Lecturer in Injury Prevention at the University of Bath. Today, we'll be talking about her new book, The Mental Impact of Sports Injury, uh, which was published quite recently in December of 2021. And so much is known about the physical strain that athletes' bodies are subjected to. But until recently, the role of psychological factors in risk and rehabilitation has been poorly understood. And this book bridges the gap between academic research and practical settings in an informative yet easy to follow guide to the psychology of sports injury. So Carly's book also explores emerging areas of importance in the field, such as training load monitoring and technological advances that are shaping modern sport medicine. So Carly, I'm very excited to speak with you today about your book, and thank you so much for being here today.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to speak with you and the listeners.
0: Great. Likewise. So um, you have several collaborations in various chapters within the book and also in the preface and introduction, you describe a little bit about how in part this is a product of of the pandemic in some ways, um, and also talk about the importance of open communication within the field of sport, um, along with a disclaimer that this book is not meant to be a textbook per se. Um, So what drew you to the field of sports injury research and also what inspired you to write this book? Right. So,
1: I guess I come from a really sporty family. I mean, as kids, my brother and I, we played every sport imaginable. There was always a game of something on the TV. Um, and as I played, you know, various things, soccer happened to be my favorite. Uh, I experienced a lot of injuries myself, um, some of them relatively severe, particularly as I got you know older and into university. And so I had a, a personal vested interest in recovering from injuries, really. And I was lucky enough that I lived in Calgary growing up, um, And that's a really sporty town. And so you were always hearing media accounts of how athletes were being injured, how they were dealing with injuries. And at the University of Calgary, where I did my undergrad, uh, they have a really good kinesiology department. They're currently one of the best sports science departments uh, in North America. And they have an established sport medicine center there as well. And so A lot of my professors in university also happened to be doing work around sport injury. So I guess for me, this has been a journey of uh, being personally involved in that world and then having a spark, an academic spark at kind of the right moment in my development as a scientist that really steered me down that path.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So it seems like it's in part your academic interest and really paired with that background you had growing up as well um, in a very sporting uh, town, it sounds like.
1: Yeah. And, and I guess that's what I tried to reflect in my book. When I said that I didn't want it to be a textbook, I really wanted it to capture that kind of balance between, yes, This is academic material and there's a lot of science that went into it, but I wanted it to be accessible from a very practical, pragmatic point of view so that even readers who, you know, themselves aren't academics, but are involved in sport, whether that be as athletes or coaches or even the parent of an aspiring athlete, they might be able to relate to the content on some level.
0: Yes, and that's something that really um, stood out to me about your book as well, is just the accessible tone. And I feel like your voice um, really came through there as well. And, and one of the things I really liked about it too is uh, these cleverly subtitled chapters. So one of my favorites is um, in one of the introductory chapters, you talk about um, what a psychological theory is and the subtitle is flat pack uh, of psychology. So I thought that was uh, very funny and, and definitely your voice comes through. Um, Throughout as well. Um, So, actually, before reading your book, and I think um, many people in the general public might also have this uh, misconception, is that I mainly thought of sports injury as the product of what you refer to as an inciting event. So, this might be like an accident during a competition and like what we see on TV or some or or, um, crash during training. So in these early chapters of your book, you talk about um, predisposition to injury as actually a very complex interplay of different factors and different traits, Uh, many of these which might be in place long before any inciting event occurs. So could you explain um, what you mean in the book by the myth of the injury-prone athlete, which you talk about a little bit, and some of the uh, key predictors of what might predispose someone to an injury.
1: Sure. And I guess um, a good starting point to think about is what we see, like you said, on TV or watching a competition, um, we often see what happens immediately before an injury happens. So we see a tackle or a fall or something like that. And the field of sports injury epidemiology um, is all about trying to work our way backwards from that to understand cause and effect. So what causes the injury to happen? And over the last 25 years or so, a lot of work has been put into trying to figure out what factors predispose an athlete to being injured and not surprisingly at all most of that focus has been on physical characteristics so an athlete's speed or strength maybe their technique in a particularly difficult maneuver we often think about the uh, the behavior of their opponents so you know did somebody tackle them too high or tackle them too low did they hit them when they were vulnerable so we often focus on those physical Characteristics of the injury event. But more recently, we started thinking too about the psychological and social risk factors that might be in place leading into an injury event. And you're right, some of these actually are in place, you know. Minutes, days, or years before an injury actually takes place. And that's where we get this idea of an injury prone athlete. There seems to be this myth out there, and it's in sport, it's in the general population as well, those of us who watch sport. We seem to label some athletes as being injury prone. Um, You know, classic example that I use in the book is when we're talking about people who do fantasy pools. And they're selecting players for their team at the start of the season. And they're always those players that nobody wants to pick because they're like, oh, man, that person is for sure going to get injured this season because they always seem to be injured. They're a liability. I don't want them on my team. And so this idea that some people have some sort of inherent characteristics that just make them susceptible to injury is so pervasive. And so... The concept that I'm trying to dig into a little bit more are what are, again, some of those psychological and social characteristics, things like a person's anxiety. So we talk about some people being very trait anxious. They're just nervous people to begin with. And research has looked into that or whether they're risk takers. Um, the, The research, unfortunately, can't tell us a whole lot. It's been really hit and miss and in some groups of athletes those appear to be risk factors and in some groups of athletes they don't. And so really what we're talking about is the complexity of injury risk and the fact that having certain characteristics like being aggressive or you know potentially being one of those risk takers might put you at greater risk of having a sport injury, but only under specific circumstances. You know, if, if a group of us was going out for a jog one evening, being a risk taker might not mean that you're going to go on to have an injury. But if we were all standing on the side of a mountain with skis on, being a risk taker in that environment might actually increase the likelihood of something happening. So I I guess that's really what that focus is all about.
0: Right. So it seems that there might be some traits or or these are longstanding characteristics that might be different from person to person that might contribute to this. But like you mentioned, the situation also plays a key role. And then all these other social factors as well that um, we'll be speaking about in a little bit, too. Um, And so. Um, this that when you mentioned trait factors, that also reminded me of something to do with the research methodologies, which you touch on very briefly as well about how a lot of research right now, and I think this not only applies to the field of sports injury, but quite widely within psychology right now, is is the difference between within individual um, studies versus between individual or like within group, um, studies. So I was wondering if you might like to touch on that a little bit and, and what research methodologies we can use or what direction that that seems to be heading in right now.
1: Yeah. So in particular, when we're talking about things like personality, if we take that as a, as a risk factor example, a lot of the research there, um, takes those personal characteristics as static. We imagine that people behave and think pretty much the same way all the time. That's just the way they are. And so a lot of the research up to this point has taken kind of a baseline measure, usually at the start of a a sports season, to you know, assess what are your potential risk factors? What does your profile look like? And then we follow athletes forward in time to see which ones end up with an injury and which ones don't. That's been great up to a point. But because we're now starting to appreciate that this is such a complex situation and that it's the interaction between those personal characteristics the situation or the environment at that moment in time. We're starting to appreciate the need for more advanced research methods, and and some of the options that are really exciting in this space include, for example, um, ecological momentary assessment or EMA, and that's something that's gaining traction in a number of fields. Um, clinical psychology is one of them. We look at exercise and behavior change as well. But in sport injury and injury prevention in particular, it might be quite useful because that methodology, which instead of taking one baseline measure and assuming that it stays constant over a period of time, it actually hopes to capture information periodically throughout a a day or over the course of a few days to get those momentary glimpses at what an athlete is thinking, feeling, or doing at that specific moment in time. And so that is a really promising way of hopefully capturing those dynamic interactions between all those factors that... We see fluctuate on a regular basis because sometimes we have athletes who, by all rights, look like they should be high risk for injury and they don't end up having one, and athletes who don't look like they're at high risk and end up having one. And so, understanding what happened at that specific moment to either increase or decrease their susceptibility is going to be so valuable.
0: Right. Yeah, for sure. And I think that speaks to this interaction between what we were talking about before, the trait variables and also um, what in psychology referred to as like the state uh, variables as well, or or what is happening in the moment, um, day to day. Um, So to bring us back to injury and also recovery. So we know that a natural byproduct of injury is pain and and sensations of pain and in the book you mention how within athletic culture you know sometimes phrases like just battle through it or just walk it off are often thrown around and at times quite casually as as well or in quite a dismissive way these uh, phrases can be spoken Um, but you also discuss how pain is much more complicated than just a physical sensation so how has our understanding and definition of pain evolved? And how might an athlete process pain compared to a non-athlete?
1: Yeah, so I will say upfront, I am not a pain expert. Um, and so for that particular chapter, I enlisted uh, the help of a colleague, Dr. Abby Tabor, that is her world. Um, but what we were trying to explore in that chapter is this idea that, as you say, pain isn't simply a, a physical sensation in school we get taught that there is a feedback loop where you know our our bodily sensors detect a painful stimulus you know something's too hot when we put our hand on it it sends a message up the nervous system our brain processes that as being a threat and then we reflexively act to protect ourselves so you know, we lift our hand off of the hot burner or whatever it happens to be. There's that reflex reflex arc, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's unfortunately where a lot of our understanding of pain stops in, in a way. And there's a really interesting emerging dialogue in the pain science community. And over the last decade or so, there's been a much greater focus on the fact that pain isn't just a physical stimulus it's also a lived and embodied experience meaning that our experience with pain so our history of having sport injuries for example or even our history of managing painful stimuli can affect the way we interpret what pain actually means so when we feel that sensation we actually have some cognitive control over whether we interpret that as a threat or not. So as an example, because that's kind of esoteric, um, as an example, we think about um, if you ever go into the gym and do a really heavy weightlifting session, in the next day or two, you're going to be sore, right? You're going to have aches and pains and what we call delayed onset muscle soreness or DOMS. When you experience that, we don't automatically interpret that pain as being a threat, right? We don't say, oh no, I'm injured. If you have experience with weightlifting, you know that actually that pain is a positive sign that your body is adapting to the load that you just put on it. So you're actually, that's you getting stronger. And so for athletes, particularly at the elite end of the spectrum, they train heavily and they put their bodies through a lot. And so pain is something that they live with on a day-to-day basis. And it almost becomes normalized within a lot of sport cultures. Uh, And that's where those terms like no pain, no gain come from. Um, So in the chapter, what we're trying to explore is Where do we draw the line between recognizing pain and working through it versus how do we know when pain is actually a sign of injury? So when is it a threat and when should we behave in a protective manner? And athletes, the more they experience pain, and this, again, happens typically as they get older and at the elite ends of the spectrum – they get really attuned to their bodies, and they're very good at interpreting what level of pain they can work through, where is the tipping point where it starts to become a threat that needs management. So am I able to perform? Is this going to impair my performance? And then the point where they actually need medical intervention. Because again, pain isn't necessarily a sign of tissue damage it might actually be a sign of tissue adaptation and repair. And so I guess to to sum it all up, this idea that pain is not just about a a sensation, but it also carries meaning to each individual athlete. And that meaning might be different from person to person or situation to situation. Um, I think this is a really important direction for researchers and clinicians and coaches to start looking into to understand actually how this affects people's abilities to not only perform, but also to maintain their bodily integrity and and their health and well-being over the longer term.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. And I think you gave such a nice explanation of what you know. In other words, we might refer to as cognitive appraisal, which is just a, a fancy way of saying, like you mentioned, the meaning that we assign to something that we experience, and and how maybe a sensation of pain might not immediately alert someone who's very used to that to go and do something about it, or to go seek some help about it, or ask someone about it. Um, and that leads me as well into. The recovery process from an injury as well. So um, you mentioned in the book how recovery is a very nuanced process and how um, it's not all or nothing, even though we might think of it in a dichotomous way, like either you get better or you don't. And you point out that we don't always hear about these uh, success stories of recovery. And you use uh, the NHL player Mason Raymond as an example of someone who not just overcame injury, but also grew from it in some ways. So why is it important to begin to turn our focus towards positive experiences of recovery and rehabilitation and, and not just focusing exclusively on the negative impacts and outcomes of injury?
1: Yeah. And this has been, uh, a, a more recent development in the injury psychology field. I think it's safe to say, um, up until this point, um, you know, up until the last year or two, I guess. Um, A lot of the media stories that you might hear or a lot of the research has focused on athletes who don't do well through the rehabilitation process. And right now, there's a really important emerging narrative from athletes themselves who are speaking out about how injuries have impacted their mental health and how You know, they found recovering from a physical injury to be taxing emotionally, socially. You know, there are all these kinds of negative knock-on effects that we hear so much about. And there's really a risk that you know, that's all we focus on. And there's some really innovative work uh, being led in various places around the world. And Ross Wadey here in the United Kingdom is is kind of leading the charge looking at what is termed sport injury related growth. Now, there are some athletes who, you know, they they do okay through rehabilitation. They, They don't seem to you know, get knocked back too far. They seem to recover and return to sport just fine. They're the same people they were before. Those success stories are great. But there's a, a smaller group of athletes that we never hear about really. And they're the ones who actually have these life changing moments through their injury rehabilitation. And they feel like they come out the other side as changed in some way, that they're somehow better people. And these are rare stories, but they're out there. And the more we learn about them, the more we understand, number one, just how complex recovery is and can be. And number two, it also gives us some insight into what differentiates experiences that go well and, and experiences that don't in the hopes that, you know, we can help facilitate more positive experiences. So learn from those cases to help athletes who aren't doing so well. And it's also important to make sure that we remember these positive stories, because we can't treat all athletes the same. And there's a risk that, you know, we either assume athletes are doing well or they're not and there's such a range of experiences that are all very nuanced and when we start categorizing people in a dichotomous way we we risk doing them harm through the process and i guess the 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 overarching issue with all of this is that when we hear all the doom and gloom stories, and we're starting to see it in some sports, that there's massive dropout. People don't want to participate anymore because they're afraid of being injured. They're afraid of the consequences of being injured. You know, we we've seen enrollment drop in youth sports, uh, in particular those that are associated with a high risk of injury, and. You know, as people get older, they drop out of sport because they start to think about, you know, if I am injured, that's going to affect work. It's going to affect my family. I, I can't afford that. But, you know, starting to hear that it's not all bad and that there are opportunities for positive experiences to happen out of an injury might you know, help us uh, focus on the benefits of sport and not just the potential negative consequences.
0: Mm-hmm, right. So it's this idea that if we were to only focus on the negative, that might inform us of how to maybe prevent those negative outcomes, but not necessarily that doesn't equate to how someone would thrive or grow. And and in order to help recreate those positive experiences, we would need to know more about them. The first exactly. Place.
1: Exactly, and and it gives us some interesting research avenues because if we can understand what sets someone up for a positive experience, we can actually develop programs or interventions that might help people develop those skills. Or, you know, we might actually be able to influence the rehabilitation environment to foster more positive experiences. So, you know, not all athletes will experience growth or really positive uh, outcomes from their injuries. But even if we can make the process a little bit better for everyone, I, I think that's a goal worth pursuing.
0: Right. And it sounds like that even from our discussion so far, there seem to be so many different variables and factors at play when thinking about predisposition and then also recovery, From injury. And so one way that uh, we might be able to better predict or keep track of all of these factors is through digital monitoring, as you discuss in the book as well. And um, definitely modern technologies have allowed us to monitor different physiological variables or administer psychological measures, even quite continuously, or we were talking about EMA before, like that's one way it would allow us to do that. So um, despite the many advantages of integrating technology into athlete monitoring, or monitoring training load, for example, um, what might be some of the practical or even ethical pitfalls of doing so?
1: Yeah, and that's becoming a really hot topic, um, not Mm. just in sport medicine, but across a number of domains of our lives. And From a practical point of view, uh, the one big issue with using digital monitoring, and I mean, we're talking everything from the smartwatch that, you know, listeners might be wearing right now, um, or, you know, if you, check your step count on your phone or something like that at the end of the day all the way up to what they do in elite sport where athletes are wearing gps units every time they train or compete or you know they're they're being hit with a barrage of questionnaires every morning to check their wellness and their sleep and their diet and all of those kinds of things whatever method you're using it generates a huge amount of data we're talking huge amounts. And one of the risks in going down this road is that we're collecting all of these variables without a really clear idea of what we're going to do with it all. And so from a practical point of view, it can be really overwhelming. You're having this barrage of data that you can't possibly keep up with in real time and so trying to process it interpret it and then apply it especially if you know you're getting that information daily it's more than a full-time job for somebody and what we're seeing in professional sport is that even in clubs or teams that have hired people specifically as data managers burnout amongst staff is huge because there's just no way at the end of the day you can download a team's worth of that data, analyze it, and turn it around so when they turn up for training the next morning that you have an action plan based on yesterday's data. It's crazy. And then from an ethical point of view, we start to get into the murky waters of data protection and how do we protect people's anonymity or confidentiality, especially when we're talking about their personal health. Like these are medical records. And so when we talk about athletes who are providing all of this, the data, you know, day on day. Their club staff have access to it. Increasingly, it's becoming public. So um, if you've watched golf recently, you'll see all of the swing metrics and ball flight uh, characteristics are projected on screen. Um, at some all-star games, the athletes are showing their heart rate monitor data and things like that to, to draw people in. But it starts to raise some really difficult questions about who owns the data, how do we protect people's confidentiality, how might that data be used? Could, you know, that prevent a player from being selected for a team, for example? Could it interfere in contract negotiations? Um, And also there is this potential dark side of constantly monitoring people because, you know, most of us, as soon as we know somebody's watching we modify what we're doing. Um, like, I'm quite grateful that the listeners can't see the video right now because I would be really self-conscious about hand gestures and my facial expressions while I'm talking. And so if we think about putting athletes under that strain, constantly having somebody watching, um, the, the mental toll of that, I, I don't think we have really started to appreciate.
0: Mm-hmm, right. So it sounds like there's both, like you mentioned, the data storage aspect and, and is it even possible for us to sort of comb through all of this data in a useful way? And then also um, just the effect of, of we act differently when we know that others are, are watching or judging or evaluating us. Um, and you also mentioned, too, this interesting point of to some extent, this data can be considered personal health care information. And um, that leads me to another point, I think it was in uh, sort of the introduction to one of the chapters, you mentioned this hypothetical situation, where, you know, if you were asked to, um, if you were given a job offer, and in this job, you were told that you would have to work um, all year round, that you would be subject to scrutiny by the public, that they might have uh, access to your medical records. And also on top of this, the job had a very high risk of injury, whether you would take it or not. Um, and you sort of pose this question to the readers. And, and that hypothetical situation really made me think like, yeah, that's true. There's so much that goes into, um, if we're talking about the elite level of someone who's under the public eye, that so much goes into being an elite athlete and a professional setting. And um, I think sports has become such a huge part of, of our culture and the cultural moment and something that many people hold very closely to their hearts and maybe in some sense um, maybe fans of some sports might even feel entitled to that information you mentioned, like the metrics of of the golf swing, for example. So, um, and this interaction between elite performance and also our broader culture is something that I've been really fascinated by. You know, the Super Bowl was recently. Uh, we just had a back to back. Somehow, the pandemic allowed us to have this back to back summer winter Olympics. Uh, crazy two years Um, so what role does sports culture and commodification play in shaping athletes attitudes towards the risks they're taking on a day-to-day basis and also the risk of injury that they're exposing themselves to um, and how might it also impact the attitudes and perceptions of, of people who follow sports as well
1: Yeah. And that's, it's a really good question and something that I think we are only now really starting to appreciate and and untangle because sports themselves have always had their own subcultures. So if we think about um, hockey, so ice hockey, um, which is its own special little sport environment. Um, We think about how uh, a hockey player might view injury or pain when they're playing their sport. And uh, the example I always like to use is that in ice hockey, getting your teeth knocked out doesn't seem to phase a lot of a lot of the athletes. Um, you know, they'll pick the teeth up off the ice uh, and come right back out for the next shift. And their gap-tooth smile is almost like a badge of honor in a lot of cases. You know, it's something to be worn proudly. Um, nobody really gets too upset about it. But if you go to another sport context that has similar characteristics but a different culture. So let's take You mentioned the Winter Olympics. So let's take speed skating. You know, this is still an ice-based sport. But if somebody lost teeth in speed skating, there would be a very different response from the athlete as well as, you know, the the officials and the coaches and their opponents. Um, That's not something that they would be used to. And so within sport itself, um, different subcultures start to normalize certain beliefs and behaviors around what is an injury? Do we report injuries? Do we play through injuries? Those kinds of things. And those ingrained cultural systems start to shape the way athletes experience injuries themselves. And that starts at a very young age for most kids who start playing. Um, And it also changes the way we speak about injuries in those contexts. And if you listen to a play-by-play broadcast of baseball or football or some other sport, you'll hear it in the way the commentators speak about different injuries. And, And that doesn't just affect the way injuries and pain are viewed within that immediate sport community, but with the rise of professionalization and, you know, we start to see um, more and more media coverage of sports and that used to only be at the highest professional levels, but now we're starting to see broadcasts of, you know, other levels of sport, uh, university and college sport, some high school sports are starting to get out there. And, and what that means is that the language and the culture that used to be within the sport community is now expanding to include the fan base as well. And so, again, with professionalization, and this is the idea that, you know, sport is an entertainment industry. And so the athletes are, are assets within, within that. And the more money that goes into these sports, um, the more entitled people start to feel about the quality of the product at the other end. And they get quite demanding about it. And, and when In the book, we start to broach some of these topics. We start to think about, like, imagine being an athlete in the middle of that where you know that because this is a business, there are always going to be younger, faster, stronger, fitter young athletes coming up the system right behind you. So you're in a constant battle for your place on the team. And so if you're injured... And have to step away, somebody is going to take your place, and then you're going to have a fight to get it back. And so we start to see all kinds of behaviors where athletes are hiding injuries, they're trying to battle through them, they're not seeking appropriate medical care. Um, And so on the one hand, that creates kind of a dangerous situation, where athletes are risking their own health and well-being and and long-term physical And mental functioning to hold on to what is a precarious role, Um, but on the other side of things, um, when there's a lot of money involved, athletes might also expect more in terms of the care they receive. And so, it's not just about you know the pressures that are being placed on the athlete, but there's also a pressure coming from the athletes themselves and you know, we're starting to see that show up in in media stories as well, where they're saying, what is the duty of care of the sport community? If, you know, if we are things that you have invested in, then protect us, take care of us. That's that's your responsibility. And uh, in some cases, you know, that gets really complex and as I said, we're really only starting to tease apart what all of this means from a a psychological point of view. But I guess it's really safe to say that it's an interesting dynamic that has implications for research and practice moving forward.
0: Mm -hmm, Right. And you mentioned how team dynamic is is one of those things that plays a really important role. And uh, we've been talking to not just about psychological factors, but also social factors we've mentioned a few times up until this point. um, And we know that even for, um, you mentioned in the book, that even for athletes who don't necessarily play on a team, so I'm thinking of people like singles tennis players or singles figure skaters, for example, um, that all athletes require a really strong social support system to navigate Um, This world. So um, I'm wondering if you could speak about what an athlete's social context encompasses and, and how it interacts with injury.
1: Yeah. And so the social context is kind of a broad term that we use to describe everything from the athlete's, you know, sport environment. So that's their coaches, potentially teammates or training partners, um, any support staff that might be around them. Um, but it also includes their personal life. So what kind of interpersonal relationships do they have with friends, partners, family? It might also, depending on, on the athlete, it might include their work environment. It might include kind of the broader social uh, network that they belong to, so their communities, their cities. um, Again, as as we've been speaking about the Olympics, it might include their country as well. And so when we talk about social context, it's not just about those immediate, very proximal parts of someone's social network, but it's it's also the bigger picture. Um, And importantly, we can see that all of those levels of social influence impact athletes in one way or another. So the easiest one to imagine is the way an athlete's relationship with their coach might influence injury risk or the way they're able to recover. So if the coach is supportive and understanding, they'll have one experience, whereas if the coach is putting a lot of pressure on them, They might have a very different experience. It's easy to imagine that. But when we start to broaden out our scope, we start to think about how, you know, we've spoken about spectators exert a certain pressure on athletes. As well, at one of the highest levels, we think about policy and how, you know, things like the rules of of the sport or policies for um, managing different kinds of injuries, like we hear a lot about right now with concussion. So there are policies in place about reporting concussions. You have mandatory um, medical assessments, or you hear about a a certain period of time that athletes have to be out of sport um, as part of their recovery. So all of these broader social factors will influence the athlete's experience. But what, again, we don't often stop to think about is how that injury might affect all of the social levels as well. So this isn't a, a one way street. All of these relationships are actually bi directional. And a really good example of that um, is, again, in ice hockey, um, Sidney Crosby. He's one of the most well-known players around the world. Uh, And he had quite a few concussions through his career. And, you know, at the time where he had his first major concussion in the National Hockey League as a professional, um, he was the the hottest player in the league. Uh, He was kind of the, you know, the poster boy, if you will. It's a terrible term but he's the poster boy of the NHL and so when he had that first concussion a lot of people stood up and took notice because if it can happen to him it could happen to anybody and the conversation around concussion really springboarded off of that particular incident and all of a sudden in the a very short time frame, just a few years after that, we started to see conversations emerging that we never thought we'd see where minor ice hockey associations were starting to, to ban body checking. Uh, we never thought we'd see that happen. Uh, conversations around making sure athletes were cared for properly after concussion. So instead of just saying, walk it off and get back out there, suddenly these injuries were being taken seriously and it affected all levels of the the social context right up to policy. And when we think about as a teammate or as a parent or even as a spectator, when you witness an injury happen, particularly if it's something quite severe, it does affect you in some ways. And from a, a sports psychology perspective, We're only now just starting to explore not only what happens to the athlete, but also what happens to everybody else who might be affected by those injuries. And it's a really interesting area of research, but to be honest, we don't yet know much about it.
0: Yeah, that's so fascinating. You talked about how the social context encompasses not just the proximal level or who the athlete is interacting with on a day-to-day basis, but the levels of support they receive far beyond that as well. And um, in the book, you also discuss how the level of support for some underserved communities, so for example, this might be para-sport athletes or youth athletes, might look a little different. So what are some of the unique challenges and considerations faced by these uh, communities that you you mentioned in your book as well.
1: Yeah, and I think um, again, I'm not an expert in youth and I'm not a Paris expert, but one of the the big messages that comes through loud and clear in the book, and, and for anybody who's read the research literature in the area is that most of the science around sport injury psychology has focused in on relatively small samples of young, able-bodied, otherwise healthy individuals, um, largely from the global north. And so to be really blunt about it, there's an extreme lack of diversity in the research up to this point. And what that means is that For a long time, there have been a lot of assumptions and generalizations that, you know, what we know about the psychology of sport injury from this research should be universal. And the reality is, is that we can't say that because we simply don't know. So for youth athletes, you know, number one, they're not autonomous. They don't have the ability to make decisions on their own behalf in a lot of cases. And so even if they want to take steps to prevent injuries or they want to report injuries or they want to a different kind of treatment for their injuries, they might not be in a position to make that happen for themselves. And so in a way, they're at the mercy of the social context that they're a part of. And in the same way for parasport athletes, their sport context is very different even just the stress of going through injury classification so they have to be put into categories to compete and those categories are in some in some cases a little bit arbitrary and they're constantly changing and so when we talk about you know going into a competition at at the best you can be well they might have just gone through a really stressful classification process so, they might not be at their best. And so that could put them at, at increased risk of injury. And, and there are all kinds of complexities in these cases that, to be honest, the, the research community has largely ignored up to this point. And, and one of the calls to action in the book is that we need to do better. Um, you know, if we want to actually support athletes across the entire spectrum of sport performance, whether that be youth, Paris sport, or even recreational, you know, weekend warriors going out to their neighborhood club or masters athletes who are competing, you know, as 70 year olds. We can't just focus on our elite 20 somethings and hope that that's going to cover us. It, it just won't.
0: Right. So this idea, similar to what we were talking about before with individual traits, for example, that um, this research, although very helpful, can't be globally universally applied to everyone and that each athlete is in a very unique uh, situation as well. And I think that anyone who has been involved with any form of applied health behavior research understands that research is, is not synonymous with implementation and that somehow it's really hard to do what's good for us even when we know we should. And, and you talk about this in a chapter which you uh, cleverly subtitled, but broccoli is good for you. And so why might it take more than traditional forms of knowledge dissemination to be able to effectively promote these uh, preventive or more proactive approaches to, to injury prevention?
1: Yeah. And and this is where I've spent essentially the last 10 years of my career trying Mm. to make some headway is that, you know, we can tell people not to do something because it's bad for them, or we can tell them to do something because it's good for them. Just telling people to do stuff doesn't mean that they're going to do it. I mean, who's made a New Year's resolution? Like, how long does that last? Right? Like, even when you know, you need to make a change because it will benefit you or prevent something bad from happening. We don't always turn those intentions into actions. And so traditionally, when we think about injury prevention or rehabilitation or even making changes as researchers to the way we do stuff, um, the idea has been that, well, we need to educate people because as soon as they're aware of a problem, and once we, you know, tell them about the situation and, you know, if they know better, then they'll do better. And that's just not how life works. We're complex creatures. And in sport in particular, they're always competing priorities. Like, nobody, you know, athletes take part in sport because it's fun because they want to compete, because they want to push their limits. Sitting there and doing injury prevention exercises, for example, accomplishes none of those things. They are not fun. They may or may not help performance. They're not exciting. So when you have competing priorities, and especially you know, athletes have limited time available to, to add stuff into their routines, as researchers, we have limited time available to learn a new technique and design new research studies using those techniques. And so number one, it's very easy to default to what we, you know, our ingrained behaviors. And we also have to consider that people's priorities might be different and that their values might be different. And in the world of sport injury, if athletes have accepted and normalized pain and injury as part of their participation then it's unlikely that they're going to take drastic steps to to prevent it and so we're starting to look at more uh, evolved ways of of implementing the ideas of behavior change and so Instead of just running education seminars or putting up posters, we're now starting to think about how can we tailor our interventions so that they help meet the needs of the community that we're actually trying to intervene in. So instead of us going out and saying, you need to do this, it's more about why don't you tell us the problems you're facing and let's co-create a solution that's going to be acceptable and usable in your environment and so we're thinking about different ways to design interventions different ways to deliver them and also some really interesting ideas that we're borrowing from other fields like marketing where you know people use behavioral nudges or guerrilla marketing some of these outlandish schemes that you see um, to think about you know maybe can can we sell injury prevention in some way to, to make it more enticing for our customers, if you want to put it that
0: way. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like that throughout our conversation today and, and also throughout the book as well. One really strong theme that comes through is is both how much we do know already and also how there are so many specific or more niche areas within the sport injury field that we still have much, much more to to learn about and to investigate, especially with the psychological or mental impact of these injuries as well. And this brings me to uh, my final question for you um, for today. Um, I'm curious what you're working on right now or what you hope to be working on uh, next.
1: Yeah. So one of the the things that I've kind of been rolling around in my head for a while and and I'm just starting to explore now is again, borrowing from a well-established field somewhere else. uh, I'm interested in behavioral economics. So if anybody has read um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, for example. I'm really interested in how the way athletes and other people in the sport environment, like referees or coaches, uh, process information and how that affects their perceptions of risk. Um, So we know that um, the way we interpret information is shaped by our own personal experience and our characteristics and I really want to know more about how the heuristics and biases that we all have might actually affect the way that we behave in a sport context or the way we decide what would be a risky thing to do and what would be less risky. And particularly in scenarios that happen at high speed. So as as an example, I'm really interested to know in, um, Is situations like downhill skiing or Formula One racing, where information is coming so fast and athletes need to make split second decisions or react almost instinctively. How do they process information? What ingrained cognitive processes do they rely on for that information? And how does that affect how they judge a situation to be risky? or not? And ultimately, what is the knock-on effect for sport injury? Um, So that's, that's kind of a passion project for me. It's a completely new direction and something we just introduce a hint of in the book, because to be honest, nobody's looking at this stuff just now. And I've probably... Just you know, given away um, <laughs> the, the the golden keys here, and suddenly there are going to be a load of people who are going to beat me to it. Um, but but I guess that's that's the goal really with writing the book is let's get some of these fresh ideas, some of these off the wall wacky ideas out there in the hopes that it might inspire more focus into sport injury psychology and and start to build a community of people who are interested in these things to, to help progress the science forward
0: yeah, definitely. Well, I very much look forward to that uh, avenue of of research coming from you. and and that sounds like a great direction to move towards. And I want to thank you again so much, Carly, for speaking with me today. Um, I really highly recommend this book to anyone who is um, either even a casual sports fan or someone who um, has had experience like yourself, you mentioned with competing in sports in the past at at any level. I think this book is so informative and most importantly, so accessible, um, like I've mentioned before as well. So um, thank you. Thank you so much, Carly, for speaking with me today.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.